Good morning. So good to see everybody. It's a good day today, man. There's a cold front coming in right as we are speaking. Excited about that. Just excited to be here with you and excited to just show just how amazing he really is. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at one of the more well-known stories in the New Testament, but probably going to look at it in a little bit different way than you may be used to hearing it, because I'm not going to approach this from the perspective of religion or human rationale, but just approach it through the lens of the gospel. And I got to tell you, as I've been preparing this all week and, and going over it, the more I did, the more excited about it I got. Uh, to where I can tell you right now, because of this truth that we're looking at here, I am more in love with Jesus right now than I was last week. And so I'm praying that the same thing happens for you. And I will tell you, this is one of those messages that you may have to go back and listen to again. Uh, because it, I would go over this and I'd be like, man, this is good. And then I'd look at it again and I'd go, oh, man, this is really good. And then like the third time, I was like, man, this is great stuff right here. I can't wait to... To, to share this, so uh, you may have to do that too, but it's, it's good stuff. Let's jump into it. What's going on here in Luke chapter 22 is that Jesus is with his disciples, the last moments that he is spending with them before his arrest and execution. They have just shared the Passover meal together, which he explains has always been about him. He is what the Passover had always been pointing to for the last 1,500 years. And of course, the disciples still don't get it because as soon as they are done eating and Jesus is making these profound statements about the bread and the wine, uh, they get in an argument together over which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus quickly ends their dispute by turning their idea of what it means to be great completely upside down, saying that the greatest among them is the one who serves rather than the one who is being served and points to himself as an example of that. And then he turns to Peter and he says something that will serve as the basis for this message today. We're going to pick up in verse 31. So let's all stand together as we are reading Luke 22, starting in verse 31. Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this truth that, Lord, you have revealed to me. And I pray that it would just be revealed to everyone else in here it just shows how incredible you are, Lord, how amazing you are. So I pray that right now you would just help me just, just, just to show just how amazing you really are. God, we thank you that you love us the way you do, even though we are so undeserving of it. And God, I pray that for somebody, Lord, that this message would serve as just a defining moment in their life. When they came to know you in ways that they never had before, Lord, I pray for people to be set free in here um, God, and I know that can happen. And I'm believing in it. In Jesus' name, I'm praying for it. Amen. 
This is part one of a three-part mini-saga in the life of Peter. Part two happens just 20 verses later when he does exactly what Jesus told him that he would do. It's a story that, like I said, the majority of us are very familiar with. Uh, As Jesus is being interrogated by the religious leaders, uh, Peter is waiting just outside in the courtyard of the residence of the high priest where they are questioning Jesus, and he's warming himself around a fire with some others there. And three of these other people recognize Peter as one of Jesus' disciples, and he denies it, says he doesn't know the man, doesn't know what they are talking about at all. And then after denying Jesus three times, just as Jesus said he would, look what happens in verse 61 and 62. It says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. That first line there has got to be one of the most brutal lines in all of the Bible. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. I mean, you can just feel the sting of that, like a dagger going right through your heart that Peter must have felt as his eyes locked on to Jesus's right after he just got finished denying that he knew him. And it was probably the worst thing that could have happened at that moment, because when that happens, there's no pretending like it didn't. I mean, you're busted. There's no trying to explain yourself, no trying to get out of it. For Peter, there might as well have been just this huge spotlight just shining on him right there at that moment because he's, he's exposed and he has failed. And I feel kind of sorry for old Peter in a way because out of all the 12 disciples, Peter seems to be just the constant screw up. I mean, he is always either saying or doing something that he shouldn't and getting scolded for it every time. And here he is again, failing bigger than he ever has before. You know, growing up in church, this is one of the stories in the Bible that I really just did not like very much at all. Because anytime a preacher would use this story for their sermon, I would cringe just knowing what was going to come. Because every time it was usually using this story to let everybody know just how we deny Jesus just like Peter and going through a list of things that we do and say that proves that we are just as guilty at denying him. And I'd leave those sermons feeling so condemned but very determined not to ever do those things again. And that seemed to be the goal of those sermons. Get everyone to feel bad enough about themselves that they commit to not ever doing those things again. To never deny Jesus again. And so it was, don't be like Peter in verse 57 where he's denying Jesus. Be like Peter in verse 33 where he's declaring, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Commit to being a better Christian seemed to be the point of nearly every message that I heard. And everyone, for the most part, would do just that, but eventually end up being, again, the verse 57 version of Peter, failing to live up to the commitments that we had made. And so it was this constant self-defeating cycle. Realize how sorry you are, ask God to forgive you, promise to never do it again, but then eventually fail at that promise. 
And then again, realize just how, what a sorry person you are. Ask God to forgive you. Promise to never do it again. And then again, eventually fail over and over. And to me, this seemed to be the definition of what it meant to be a Christian. And at some point, I thought, this can't be the abundant life that Jesus said that he came to give. And so every time a preacher would tell us to turn to this story, I'd think, oh, here we go again. But since I've come to a better understanding of the true gospel, I no longer view this story that way at all. And I've come to realize that Jesus would actually prefer us to be, verse 57, than he would verse 33. Am I saying that he wants us to deny him? Not at all. What I am saying is that he would rather us fail at our own self-determined effort than make some big commitment that we could never keep. Now, I'd love to do a survey of everyone here in this room and just ask you, what do you think the look on Jesus' face was when he turned to Peter at that moment? And I would bet that whatever you say probably has a lot to do with the way that you think God looks at you. And some of you would probably say he, just, he was looking at Peter with just this look of disgust. Or that it was a look of, of saddened and, and hurt and anger. Or a piercing look of disappointment. You know, the way that your parents when you were growing up just had to give you that one certain look whenever you got in trouble. They didn't have to say a word. It was just that one particular look that would just make you melt right there. You knew exactly they didn't have to say anything. You know, one of the worst things a, a child can hear their parents say is, I'm not mad at you, I'm just disappointed. It's like, oh gosh, just go ahead and whip me rather than say that I've disappointed you. But sometimes they could look at you in just a certain way and you knew that's exactly what was being communicated right there. And you would just feel so much shame and disappointment in your own self. I don't know for sure what the look on Jesus' face was in that moment, but I can almost guarantee you that it wasn't any of those. And the reason why is because, for one, this was not a surprise to Jesus at all. I mean, Jesus told Peter directly that he was going to be doing this. The only way that you disappoint someone is by doing something that they didn't expect you to do. The actual definition of disappoint is to fail to fulfill the actual expectations or wishes of. Peter did not fail to meet Jesus' expectations or wishes. He actually met them perfectly because he did exactly what Jesus expected him to do. I don't know what kind of look it was on his face, but I just bet in, in my mind I can just see Jesus looking over at Peter making sure that what he knew was going to happen did, and just this faintest little corner of his mouth going up just a little bit there, and it's almost starting to form a smile. And I know that's got to sound crazy to some of you, but the thing is that Jesus knew what the eventual outcome of this was going to be. He, he knew what this was going to lead to. You see, in order for Peter to be the kind of disciple that Jesus wanted him to be, this had to happen. The first point in your notes is this, 
In order for Peter to be the man that Jesus wanted him to be, he had to fail. Especially in this particular instance. This was needed for Peter to be able to fulfill his purpose. Let me explain what I mean. You see, Peter was confident, so confident, that his loyalty to Jesus was secure. He was sure that nothing could make him back down from his commitment to Jesus. I mean, here was a man who was closer to Jesus than most all the other disciples. He was part of that inner circle, someone who had been with Jesus on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. He was the very first one to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and commended by Jesus for doing so. He sized up the rest of the group and was sure that his commitment was stronger than theirs. But whatever confidence he had in his own faithfulness to Jesus all came crashing down that night by the fire. It says that when Peter realized what he had done, he went out and wept bitterly. And can you imagine just the shame and the guilt that Peter had to have been under? Can you imagine the disappointment in himself that he had to have been feeling? Of course you can. Because every one of us have felt that same exact way at one time or another. I deal with people all the time who struggle under that same weight and say things like, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. That's one of the most common statements I hear from folks. And if that's you, I sincerely hope that this message today goes a long way in setting you free from that. And it can if you would just listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying through his word this morning. Jesus had great things in store for Peter. Despite his frequent failures and mistakes, Peter was chosen to be a major player. I would say the major player at the beginning of the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. Jesus even told him that he was going to be the rock that he would build his church on. The name Peter literally means rock. After his resurrection, Jesus entrusted Peter with the care of those that the Father had chosen to be his people. He entrusted Peter with the care of his bride until he came back again. Let's look at when Jesus did that. Turn over to John chapter 21. In John 21, Peter and the disciples are still trying to make sense of what all had transpired With Jesus' resurrection, I believe Peter was still wallowing in some of that guilt and self-pity and discouragement over what he had done. And In John 21, 3, he tells the others with him that he's going fishing. And I don't believe that he was simply saying that he was going to go spend the day on the lake. I believe that he was saying at that moment that he was going back to the life that he knew before he met Jesus. You see, although being a part of this incredible experience for the last three years had been very exciting, it all came crashing down at the end, leading in Jesus' death and Peter's complete shame and disillusionment. And so now he was going back to what he knew, to what he was comfortable with, to what he was good at, because obviously being good at following and being committed to Jesus, he wasn't. He proved that that night in the courtyard. 
As they are out in the boat, Jesus appears on the shore and calls out to them. John immediately recognizes him, leans over to Peter and says, Hey, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter looks up, and without saying a word, he immediately just jumps right into the water and swims as hard as he could to the shore to Jesus. And after they had all eaten breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside, and he says this to him, starting in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Obviously, Jesus asking in this three times signifies the fact that he was redeeming each one of Peter's three denials. Jesus wasn't just letting Peter know that he was forgiven or that he loved him. He was bestowing on him a great responsibility and a very privileged position. And just imagine if a king of your country was going on a a long journey. He's going to be away for a while. And he asked you, a commoner, to look after and care for his bride, the queen, while he was gone. He's asking you to protect her, nurture her, make sure she's healthy and safe, protect her honor. I mean, that would be a big deal to be asked to do. And that's essentially what Jesus was asking of of Peter, to look after, protect, and nurture his bride, the church. I mean, Jesus, this is what he had in mind for Peter before he even approached him on the shore three years earlier and said, follow me. He was making Peter essentially the one who would take his place as the leader of this new movement that was about to spread like wildfire. But in order to prepare for him for that role, Jesus first had to take him through that night by the fire. He had to show Peter that his ability, his standing with God, and his success had absolutely nothing to do with his own faithfulness, commitment, and morality. Jesus first had to strip Peter of everything that he might be led to put his confidence in other than Jesus. And in this case, it was his confidence in his own prideful commitment and determination, which he arrogantly showed by declaring, with you, I'm willing to go both to prison and to death. Peter's failure was needed in order for two main things to happen, in order for him to be the man that God had created and chosen him to be. These are the next thing in your notes there. The first one, he had to be stripped of all confidence in self. Self Self-assurance, self-commitment, self-determination, all had to be stripped away. And the reason why I say that is because all that would be left for him to have confidence in would be Jesus. And then the other thing that needed to happen is that he needed to know that he was loved unconditionally. Peter could not have been an effective leader of the church. 
He could not have been the man that God called and created him to be successfully if he did not know and understand what it meant for him to be loved unconditionally. Next point. The failure of his own faithfulness was essential for him to discover the faithfulness of God. I'm going to say that again because that right there is something. The failure of his own faithfulness was essential to discover the faithfulness of God. I think too often well-meaning church leaders implore their people to more dedication, deeper commitment, stronger faithfulness. And I believe it would just do us a whole lot better if we would declare the faithfulness of God. The one good thing about exhorting people to those things over and over is that eventually they will discover that they can't do enough to prevent their failure in those things. No matter how hard we try to be dedicated, committed, and faithful, eventually we will fail. And that failure, I'm telling you right now, will be a blessing from God for allowing us to do so because it would strip us of all confidence in self and allow us to see that we are loved unconditionally. His love for you is not conditional on your behavior, your success, your commitment, your faithfulness, none of that. Here's what I believe the bottom line is when it comes to not being able to forgive yourself. If you're one of those who says, I believe God has forgiven me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself, I think there's two things going on there. Number one, it means that you've put too much confidence in yourself. Think so highly of you and your own commitment and dedication and morality and faithfulness that you're disappointed that you didn't live up to that. Listen, I hate to burst your bubble. No, I take that back. I love to burst your bubble in this case. It's only God's mercy that you didn't fall any harder than you did. Because apart from Christ living through us, every one of us are are capable of complete and total depravity and wickedness. Number two, if you can't forgive yourself, then that means no, you don't know that God has forgiven you. Because if you understood what his forgiveness really means for you, you would not still be wallowing in your own self-pity and discouragement. Because when you see what it means to be completely and totally forgiven, man, your eyes get off of you and onto him. It's not about you anymore. I mean, you may agree with it in theory, but it hasn't yet sunk in right here. The title of this message is Successful Failure. In our American culture that puts so much emphasis on success and achievement and self-confidence, those two words just don't go together. It's a big oxymoron in, in Western culture. A failure can't be a success. But in Peter's case, it was because it allowed him to know Jesus in ways that he wouldn't have had he not failed in this instance. God used it to mold him into the leader that he wanted him to be. You'd never hear this message preached in a church that promotes the prosperity gospel because it says that all God wants is for you to be successful. And that success is measured by health and material wealth and happiness. 
But what we see from Peter's story is that sometimes God actually leads us into failure in order for it to eventually lead us to spiritual success. And if that's true, then there's no way that God is looking down on you in disgust, shame, and disappointment. He's looking at you the way a parent looks at a toddler when they're first learning how to walk, but they keep falling down more times than they're taking steps. And we don't get mad when a child falls down when he's first learning how to walk. We laugh, we smile, we love them because we know that each one of those falls means, number one, that they're learning. And it also means they're going to fall less and less as they continue to grow in our love and teaching. If all we did was scold them every time they fell, punish them for it, tell them how disappointed we are in them, They'd lose heart to even try anymore. But when they fall and we pick them up and we love on them and we encourage them to keep going, they do. Makes them want to try all the more. But don't get me wrong. Not all failure leads to success. How do we know the difference? Well, that's easy. It's right here in God's Word. You see, Jesus had 12 disciples, two of which betrayed him. Judas betrayed him and ran as far away from Jesus as he could, trying to alleviate his shame and guilt at the end of a rope. Peter betrayed him too, but he ran, or rather swam, to Jesus, allowing Jesus to be the one to remove his shame and his guilt for him. Last point, what determines if your failure will be a success is rather you run away or run to Jesus. Too often when we fail, our immediate reaction is to think that we've got to run away from God. We've got to get away from Him because we're not even worthy to be in His presence. We're not worthy to come near Him, and so we've got to fix things and clean ourselves up so to make ourselves more presentable to Him so He'll like us more. I'm telling you, that's what people do who do not understand the gospel because the gospel says you cannot fix or clean yourself up. Only Jesus can. You know, something happened at my house this past summer one day that really illustrated this in a big way for me. In our barn, we had this big collection of of fireworks that someone had given us at one point. They had their own fireworks stand and Years ago, they had all these fireworks left over, and so they were getting rid of them, asked them if we wanted them, and I was like, of course. But they made me a little nervous because they were really old and and kind of volatile. But, um, of course, the kids loved having them there and showing their friends this huge pile of fireworks that we had. But there were two rules. If we were going to keep these, there were two rules. Number one, they had to ask first before they just started playing with them. And number two, there had to be an adult present to supervise it. They knew that if they broke any one of those rules, that would be the end of all the fireworks. Well, one day this summer, it seemed like all four of my kids had a friend over on this particular day, and they were all playing outside while I was doing yard work, and I was weed eating, and I had earbuds in listening to music. And even though I had all this noise around me with the music and the weed eater engine, I faintly heard a scream, just barely, but the tone of it I knew was serious. Now, if you're a parent, 
If you're a parent, you know which screams are serious and which ones aren't. I mean, I've got three girls at my house, so there's screams going on around there all the time. Some of them are happy screams. Some of them are, are, are playful screams. Some of them are overly dramatic screams trying to get somebody else in trouble. But a parent can always tell just by the tone what kind of scream it is. And this one, even though I couldn't hear it very clearly, I could tell just by the tone that this was serious. And I pulled the earbuds out, and, and I looked around for where that was coming from, and I heard this high-pitched, shrill, panicked, Daddy! And so I looked in the direction of where the barn was and where this scream was coming from, and I just saw this big pillar of smoke coming up from behind the barn. What had happened is that one of my kids, I'm not saying which one it was, but I will say it's not the one that you probably expect, so I'm letting him (laughs) off the hook. (laughs) One of my kids and their friend decided it would be a good idea to take one of the plastic rockets that was in all that And without asking for permission, without an adult being around, decided to light it. Instead of it going straight up, it just went over to the side, right into the dry grass and exploded, caught it on fire. And so I'm running down there as fast as I can, and I look, and this fire is just spreading fast, and it's right next to the huge propane tank that we had back there. And so I grab a water hose that was on one end of the barn, and I tell one of the other kids to grab a hose that was on the other, and I'm yelling, call the fire department, call the fire department, and we're spraying it. Luckily, we get it put out before volunteer fire department had to come. But here's what struck me about that. My child knew what they were doing was wrong, and they knew that if they got caught, they'd be in big trouble. And I found out later that when it first broke out, these two actually tried to fix it themselves so that they wouldn't get found out. And so they were running into the barn with these cups, (laughs) filling them up in the sink and running outside and throwing it on the fire. It only took about two or three back and forth trips to where they realized this is not working. It's actually getting worse. But here's the dilemma my child faced. If daddy finds out, I'm in big trouble. But I desperately need daddy to fix this. Those are two very strong competing thoughts going against each other. The fear of daddy being judge and the need for daddy to be savior. One of those two things had to win out over the other. Thankfully, their need for a Savior was stronger than their fear of me being the judge, and that scream for Daddy split the air. This is the exact place that I believe the Holy Spirit brings us with Jesus. It first happens a moment of salvation when you first realize just how sinful and guilty you are in light of God's holiness that you are so deserving of his punishment, but at the same time realizing that he is also the only one who can fix that sin problem. But I believe it also happens when we fall, either morally, have a failure in judgment, 
and our faithfulness or whatever, and our initial reaction is to want to run away and hide to not be found out. But deep down, if we have the Holy Spirit in us and we know that he is the only one who can fix it and remove that guilt and that shame. Every time, don't think that you're going to be the only person in the history of the world that will be successful at this when you run away and try to fix it yourself. Because all you're going to do is just make it spread even bigger. You're not going to clean up anything. You're just going to smear the mess. Just like those two kids tried to fix it themselves and things just got worse. I'm telling you, running to Jesus will always lead to a failure being a success. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is faithful to fulfill all the requirements for humans to be able to relate to God. He offers his faithfulness to those who trust him. Did you hear that? He offers his faithfulness to those who trust him. Your standing with God is not based on how faithful and committed you are to him. It hinges on how faithful and committed Jesus is. And that will never waver or fail. The faithfulness that you desire to please and to honor God is solely found in Christ alone. Why focus on our own determination all the time when Jesus has gone all the way for the victory that we so desperately want? He's done it. Let's pray. Lord, your grace and your goodness is amazing. Lord, you just never cease to amaze me. Never. God, just how good you are, just how deep your goodness goes. Lord, just when we think we know how good you are, Lord, you show us another aspect of your nature that just, just continues to blow me away. And Lord, I just ask, Lord, I just confess that we have put too much confidence and hope in our own commitment and faithfulness and effort. And Lord, by doing that, we lessen and make light of what you have accomplished on the cross. Lord, help us to see that our only hope and our only confidence is in you and you alone. That it's not on our faithfulness, it's on yours. That it's not on our commitment, it's on yours. It's not on our goodness, it's on your perfection that you offer to those who put their trust in you. So Lord, I pray for those in here that, that, that may be here today, God, who, who, who may be at that place where they realize that how sinful and guilty they are. They've never cried out to you. They've just been trying to handle their mess on their own trying to live life their own way. They realize now that they can't do that and they need you to be Savior in their life. 
Lord, I pray that their need for a Savior would be stronger than their fear of judgment. Lord, I pray for those who know you, but they have messed up because they've let themselves down so much. Lord, would you let them see that the confidence that they had in themselves was no good anyway. And Lord, those that have been trying to hide from you, thinking they're not worthy to come near you, Lord, but they would just, you would open their eyes to see that their only option that can end in anything good is to run straight to you. Lord, you see everything. There's nothing that they're hiding. Lord, those that have just felt so condemned, thinking that you are looking upon them in shame and disappointment and disgust, Lord, let them feel you just drawing them close to you with your love and your grace and your mercy like a good father who leads their children into good things and encourages them and cheers them on and wraps them up in their arms even when they fall and they fail. God, you are amazing. And we praise your name for it for eternity. Holy Spirit, I'm just asking you now to have your way in the hearts of those who have just heard your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.